Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Happy Thursday, everybody. Hope you're getting through the week focusing on self-care, pleasure, and rest. Why? Because that's the foundation we need every single day to give us the resilience to get through the day to focus on our mental health. Because remember, that's what the goal is. There's no health without mental health. There's no being a good parent without mental health. There's no being a good husband, wife, boyfriend, or girlfriend without mental health. There's not being a good colleague or coworker. All those things matter. Question of the night. It's up on our Loveline IG page. As always, we'll be breaking that on down later in the show and then sliding into those DMs. So if you got a question for Dr. D, drop on in there. As always, confidential and anonymous. No question too big or too punchy. Um, got a great show planned, but now talk about some news, not a dull moment. Miley Cyrus came out saying her first sexual experience was a threesome with two girls. She said, I got most of my girlfriends to hook up with me. (laughs) That's look, sexual development. It's a necessary process to go through. At some point, everyone has sex, um, except for those that maybe are on the more asexual spectrum. And even so often asexual individuals do engage in sexuality for a multitude of reasons. Um, And it's not always the most normative experience. It's not always opposite gendered and just two people. My early sexual experiences were also very diverse and creative. Probably not a shocker to longtime listeners or fans of my work. I was always very explorative, but it's more from a place of always being very confident. And I knew that my worth as a person was based on the way I showed up to others in the world, not based on the kind of sex I had. I always had very ethical sex and it was always with multitude of genders and in different numbered scenarios. And so her sexual experience, uh, threesome with two girls. Yep. Miley girl. I've been there, done that too. Um, good experience. I hope she got a lot out of it and I'm proud of her for coming forth and saying so it gives people a lot of liberation and support knowing that there's not one right way to have sex or to be sexual. A lot of reasons why we do it and uh, do it for what makes sense to you. Now, I want to talk about something that was said by the actress Olivia Munn. I'm not familiar with her at all, but she was on a podcast and she was dropping a lot of what we call homophobic microaggressions, which means still toxic and problematic and homophobic, but not large scale things. But also it was directed at her ex-boyfriend. Here's the thing. Look, and this is something that I think is really, 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 really important. What happens is we enter relationships, right? Where we feel good with someone. And uh, due to that trust, people are vulnerable and transparent and they open up. Then we get injured, wounded, broken up with, break up, and we somehow feel as though we don't need to honor what was shared with us while together in a place of safety. And that is very violent and toxic. And also you are letting others know that you're not a safe person to be in a relationship with. 
I posted something that I want to read to you. Love is keeping safe the parts of your partner that are sensitive. Love is the safety of knowing that your soft spots won't be used as weapons. Ever. That last part I'm adding now in all caps. Ever. Please, when someone shares something with you, naked photos, vulnerability, transparency, they're trusting that they're trusting you. You don't get to still be a good person and later when you are wounded or hurt, use that against them or as a weapon. So these people that do tell-alls and gossip like she did, talking poorly about her ex, about the sex she didn't enjoy, or whether or not she thinks maybe he's gay, that's not okay. But people, she's basically telling the world, hey, I'm Olivia Munn over here, and when I'm let down or disappointed, I use my platform to shame people. That's not safe. No one should feel safe being vulnerable with her. No one should feel safe with these people that write tell-all books. You're saying that you can't be trusted. You don't have a right to use that information that was entrusted in you. That's, that's so gross to me. Be better than that, you guys. Like, that's not okay. I take, I take powerful issue with things like that. So I want everyone to do a lot better. Um, that kind of stuff is just horrifying to me. Also, talking a lot about why marriages may not survive a second wave. We talked about it on our other show, but um, listen, y'all, we got more coming. This is ongoing the pandemic. We want to survive the best we can. So be very, very, very thoughtful about what you're saying and doing with your partner because they will take that forward. They will remember the impact is real. So I'm telling everyone, let things go, number one, right? Number two, right-size things. Let's give it the response that the issue actually warrants. Let's not amplify something that's not that dramatic, right? And number three, take some space. Uh, Grindr's new CEO, Grindr, for those that aren't familiar, is a sex and dating app. The new straight, the new uh, hetero CEO, wants the hookup app to, and I quote, be a positive place for everyone, not just good-looking people. Man. That's a big statement. Look, I want people to have sex with and date the people that they're attracted to. We also want to dismantle and challenge what we currently see as beautiful and attractive. Push on our limits. Challenge ourselves. Change the kind of porn we're watching. Change the kind of people we're having sex with. Expand ourselves to go outside of what we think is our type and our norm. Also hold space for the fact that maybe someone might not visually initially be something attractive to you, but the chemistry can arise upon meeting and personalities coming together. There's something really honest and beautiful about that. And finally, I want to just kind of land on this one. A mattress brand is paying couples $3,000 to test beds. Look, (laughs) Sleep Standards has announced a new campaign, and for some a job, in order to find out which of their mattresses are the best for having sex. They're looking for five couples to take part in the experiment. Company will send a new mattress to each couple once a week for eight weeks. The couples will then get to sleep on those mattresses and sleep on them Sleep on those mattresses and sleep on... Wait, what? That's an odd way it framed it. Anyway, couples will report back to the company about their quote-unquote findings. $3,000, y'all. Come on. (laughs) What a great reason to have sex. All right, question of the night is up on our Loveline IG page and some DMs. We've got a great show planned for you. Stick around. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. Right now, children and their families all over Southern California are going to bed hungry. Channel Q and Radio.com have an easy way that you can help feed local students and their families. Text the word NEED to 76278 to give a buck. And also put food in the mouth of a hungry child and their loved ones. Just $1, it's going to make a big difference. Learn more about Feed Our Families on our socials and at WeAreChannelQ.com. All right, and now we're going to go to our first guest, Jay Moore. How are you? Welcome to the show, Dr. Chris. I'm well. I'm. Uh, this is exciting. I, I'm. Uh, I'm happy to talk about the things that you talk about. Brother. Oh, it, good. good. 
I was asking, you know, you have such familiarity and self-awareness around mental health and a lot of people in our culture oh, was it hard don't ever talk about it. it. Yeah, so I was wondering where that came from. There comes a time in your life where you just don't, you don't have a choice. You do not have a choice to get your mental health under wraps or not. When you come to the awareness that this is not okay, it's spiraling out of control. And for me, it was when I, I don't have fear. I don't really, I don't worry. I don't fear things. I don't get afraid of things. I'm very hard to startle. Like I'm not a, some tough guy. I'm just like when quarterbacks in the, in the Super Bowl say the game slows down for them. Like when some stuff breaks out, everything gets kind of slow for me. Right. I don't get fearful. But when I started being fearful about my mental health, I went, oh, no, 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 no. Like waking up afraid, like, am I cracking up? You just, you have to do it. You just have to do it in life. Like it's repetition. It's attendance and repetition. If you're talking about writing a book, write your book or be quiet. If you think you're going nuts, get a handle on it or go drive to the center of the sun. That's right. And do you think- Don't make us all wait. Do you think being a man in our culture, there's a lot more stigma on talking about mental health? I think it'd be unfair to women Yes, I do think there's a stigma attached, more so attached to men than women when it comes to mental health. But I, I also, I, I gotta think it's universal. I think women have the same problem because women are moms, obviously some of them, and it's, if you can handle a household and run it, why can't you get your, your thoughts under control? So they're gonna be a little reluctant maybe. So I think the stigma affects women as much as men. And I, to the men out there that are listening, I'm probably preaching to the converted, but if I can reach anybody, the most manly thing you will ever do is ask for help. I want to go back to a point you made that I think is really powerful, which is, you know, mental health is often an invisible illness, right? Where we're so willing to Great accommodate point. the physical, right? When we can see it, a broken arm, a wounded eye, but we somehow struggle to take seriously the invisible struggles of mental illness. But as you pointed out, they're real. I just said this to somebody last night. If I was a woman with a black eye, I would do so much less talking. I was in an abusive marriage. I, I was, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty well now, but that was three years ago. I mean, it took me so long to untangle narcissist tentacles and gaslights, sticker bushes and just, it just keeps unfolding of like how deep it gets. Yeah. And it's, um, what was the question, right? Because I started getting nuts with sticker That's okay. We're just talking about the importance of recognizing that even though mental health is an invisible illness, it's still- It's an invisible illness. Yeah. That's, I love it. And I'm writing that down too. Well, we write, write down. that down for me, so I don't. Okay. Uh, it's an invisible illness. Yes. And like I said to that friend uh, yesterday, I said, I was just, well, what happened with this? Why can't you just, why don't you just meet a nice girl? And if I was a woman with a black eye, you wouldn't ask me any of these questions. You'd be like, give her, give her time. She's obviously been through a lot. Or if I was a guy with stitches, but there are no marks. It's just the bruises in our hearts. You but know, yet it's it just, still has value, right? Um, I wanna, if there's a room, yeah, it has value. It's incredible. You, oh. You're good, man. I want to come back on this. <laughs> I, I didn't realize it's like 12. I've been doing like, three-hour, you know, Rogan-esque podcast marathon stuff. We're, we're quick and to so, the point over here. We're quick and to the point. I'm but great. Before, yeah. I, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you one more question that's a little off-topic. So, you know, right now we're having a beautiful moment where we're paying attention to, you know, social justice values, but then there's also the darker side of cancel culture. What, what kind of stress, if at all, does that put upon you as a writer and a comedian? I have no stress that I feel uh, about cancer. 
cancer culture is actually pretty good too. Cancel culture, uh, I, I don't really think it's a thing. I'm a comedian, I know it. I, um, do you know anyone that's been canceled? Yes. You know a person who is no longer here? They were canceled? Oh, not not, ca canceled? not canceled off the planet, though people are trying, which I think is heartbreaking, right? Like, leave room for people to apologize, do better, and learn, but... What if I don't feel sorry? What if I don't feel sorry? That's real, too. Yeah, you just... The consequences, right? You just deal with the consequences. What are they? I think the consequences when you make an apology is the mob can sniff out that you're not 100% down with that apology. Your apology says, if I offended anyone... You're out. Did you curse on this podcast? I cursed twice, I realized. We're, we're going to be removing that. <laughs> okay. You're out. If you apologize and your apology says, if I offended anyone, you're out. Yeah. They're going to kill you. I feel strongly they can only get you if you care. You have to do work that is critic-proof. If you work for and from your heart, about your heart, who's going to have a negative thing to say about it? My I got news for you. I just shot two stand-up specials last summer in the same month. So I put two hours down. If you drop the needle, like an old, I don't know, record, it's timely, record player reference. If you just hit play on those specials anywhere and isolate 60 seconds, you can take that to TMZ. TMZ will get in contact with me for the horrific content. Uh, no comment is a comment. They got you. Nobody's that offended. Nobody's offended for the person they say is offended by that. Bill Maher makes a, a house versus the field joke uh, regarding slavery because a white guy across from him is being so disgustingly creepy, saying, we'll put you to work in the fields in a southern accent. And then he repeats it, and Bill says, I'm a house. Mm -mm. And Bill, Bill Maher has an issue to apologize. First of all, it's a perfect joke. It's perfect. There's not one black person alive that called anyone, wrote any letter to a senator saying, I want that guy off TV. First of all, they're not watching Politically Incorrect or whatever the name of a show is. They're watching something. I mean, it's, it's absurd. Um, what I say on stage, I am not apologetic for a syllable that I say, so I would be more confused that the other side was hurt. Okay. And that's from my mental health uh, examination. It's a daily thing. It has to be daily. If you want to get well, if you want to change your life, you have to do something every day to change your life. That's why you should meditate or just sit quietly for only two minutes right when you wake up. Then you've already changed your life that day. Alcoholics Anonymous are geniuses when they go, upon awakening, so keep monitoring yourself and know that your story and your narrative is actually who you are and what you believe in and what you stand for. So when the cancel culture comes your way, don't tell them anything. The worst thing you could do is even open your mouth to defend if you're a racist or not or a homophobe or a misogynistic person or an anti-Semite. The minute you open your mouth, you're out. They're going to keep going down to the next. It's a parade. It just keeps moving around. I don't really think about it a lot because I'm sitting alone doing push-ups with a, a Pomeranian for four and a half months. I'd like to be able to go out and walk the yard once in a while, but I got to make sure I'm good with the other gangs in this, well, this hard uh, Malibu you've got, prison. I'm in. You've got, but you got the ocean in your backyard, so you'll be doing all right. Jay Moore, That's thank you. Catch lunch. That's right. Thank you so much for being a part of our show. I'd love to come back and of give course. you concise answers now that I know it's an 8 to 12-minute window. Goodbye, my friend. <laughs> Have a good night. Thank you for this opportunity. Get help, everybody. All right, we're back. Question of the night. It's up on our Loveline IG page. And coming up next, we're going to be sliding on into those DMs. So I want to talk about empathy. But before we do, I have to share this with you because it was something I was seeing online and cracking me up. So it's basically... 
a map and it has the worst attractions in each and every state. Ready for this one? It's kind of hilarious. So I went right to California where I live. So the worst attraction in California, Hollywood. <laughs> Hollywood's a colorful place. It's an interesting place. Definitely never dull. Uh, something you do have to check out at least once, the walk of fame, the characters and costumes posing for photos to make money and um, all the other you know ridiculousness that is the Hollywood Walk of Fame. But Hollywood in general, eh, I know. It's a little bit of a funky place. Hollywood, as we say, up to no good. But there's a lot of iconic stuff there. You have to drive around and find it. But um, Hollywood has some interesting, interesting stuff. They even have a really fascinating museum called the Museum of Death. Very overwhelming. It's very honest. It's very real. It's very raw. But it helps us really encounter and have somewhat of a different relationship and exploration of death and all the different ways it exists. Funky, funky, funky stuff. But um, let's see some other states. So <laughs> this is kind of obnoxious. The worst attraction in Texas is the Alamo. <laughs> also has a problematic history, but yeah, let's go with that. In Florida, Disney. See, I'm a big Disney fan. Not that I watch the films. I'm not a fan of cartoons necessarily. Um, but I like going. It's really fun for the day here out in California in Disney World. I can go for like good eight hours or so. I don't know. It's a really happy, fun place. Um, let's see what else. What do they have in Pennsylvania? The Rocky statue. See, I love that. New York City, Times Square. I'll agree with that. Again, something you should see if you can at some point in your life. It's quite overwhelming. Uh, the clothing stores are open till like 2 a.m. even during the week. You can go to H&M till 2 a.m. Um, anyway, funny stuff, uh, basically, <laughs> I don't know, the potato museum, voodoo donuts in Portland. See, I can't agree with that. It's a vegan donut place. It's actually one of my favorites. Okay. So let's talk about empathy. And the reason why I bring this up is a lot of couples, one of the reasons why they fight is they don't really often feel heard. They don't feel as though you were present with what's going on with them. And so some of the work that comes up is I'll give people a three-step process and I'll say, listen, when a partner comes and sits down with you, or even a loved one, a family member, an employee, there's a couple steps you can take as a way for you to really sit with yourself as you're sitting with them. And it's about, again, like I said, creating this safe space, a safe container in which your partner feels like they're being heard, listened, and validated. And a lot of people are raised in a family where it's not safe to have intimacy, where emotionality wasn't expressed, where empathy sometimes didn't exist, where conflict was very scary because there weren't really good, healthy resolution skills in that. But the first one is you wanna just listen. So you don't wanna be thinking, you don't want to be focused on what you're going to say next. You don't want to be focused on anything other than just listen, no judgment. You're listening without judgment. And that's what listening is. I haven't necessarily developed an opinion. Yes, feelings will start to occur in my body that will help lead me to my emotional experience of what I'm hearing. But the first step is just, again, listening, no judgment. It's not about is this good, is it bad? I'm just being present with what's being said. Then you look for a feeling. But again, this is about what the other person's saying. So again, you're listening to what they're saying. And the second step is identifying a feeling. Am I hearing them talk about sadness, anger, frustration, loneliness, disappointment? And then you sit in that. Let yourself kind of feel that. Can I feel it in my body? Can I feel that sadness or that disappointment that they are expressing and feeling? And then you can reflect about your thought or your feeling on what's being said. And the key is walking through that process so that, again, it's not as though it's being made about you. You're not centering yourself or your experience. And that's what empathy is about. It's not just feeling what other people are feeling. It's not just understanding what they are going through because often you maybe can't relate directly. 
it's not about yourself, right? It's about feeling what they're feeling. And the way we do that is by listening, no judgment, identifying a word, and kind of engaging that, that emotion word with validation and maybe even reflecting back what you heard. And so it's always about the other person completing their process before you go through yours, right? That's another way to look at it. I let that person complete their process where they share, we feel, we reflect and summarize, and then I can make it about me, right? This is how I felt that, this is what I heard, or this is what I wanted to add to that, or this is kind of my experience of what you said, but you come secondarily, you come after them going through their entire process. And it's, it's powerful work because it's on a larger scale just developing the capacity or tolerance of deeper intimacy, right? Because that's when we really connect and feel like we have a true relationship, right? When we walk away from these conversations with deep empathy, deep vulnerability, deep intimacy, that's when we really feel like we got to know someone or someone got to know us. That's when we really feel connected. That's when trust is built in those moments. Conflict also, and again, this isn't about conflict or non-conflict. It's just being in the experience with someone. And the, the judgment around it is always all, it's is well after that, right? It's just about letting this person be seen and connected. It resolves a lot of issues. Um, and also just practicing it with children. A lot of times, childism is this idea, or adultism is this idea that adults' needs are prioritized or come first. And children often aren't given all that space. You know, people will write it off, minimize it, reduce it, instead of saying, you know, your feelings are valid. Even if you're four or six or 12, your feelings are valid. It's not about whether or not they're right or wrong. They're valid because you're experiencing it. And I'm here to hear about it. And after you've gone through that process and I've been empathetic and held space for you, which is just a sign of respect. And again, children deserve the same respect we give adults. I don't believe that adults should get more respect. It's the same. Um, we train them to go through that empathetic process, right? We do it for them, then they'll hold it for us. Ah, oh, it's important stuff. Coming up next, DMs, listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back. Now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. Sliding into the DMs is brought to you by our friends at Trojan Condoms because it's a big old sex world. We want you to explore with confidence. Here we go. Hey, Dr. Chris, what are some ways I can feel more confident in bed? I've gained a little weight, and honestly, I'm always tired, but I do want to have sex. I just can't or won't. Man, you're asking a big, gigantic question. How do I feel more confident in bed? And you're kind of bringing in your weight. Uh, basically, it's how do, I feel more how do I feel more confident in my body? A couple things. First, start working with the self-talk. Are you positively speaking about your body or negatively? You have to change that. You have to start calling out when you're shaming your body and saying it's not attractive or not desirable or not able to you know, derive pleasure and start doing more positive self-talk or at least more neutral self-talk saying it doesn't really matter. My body doesn't have to count. I mean, the neutrality piece is saying that I can have sex in a larger body, a smaller body because throughout the lifespan, our bodies are gonna change. No one starts... No one's body stays the same, whether it's due to medica medication, aging, life context, stress, the diet, our diet, um, all sorts of different factors. And we want to be able to feel comfortable in our body in all those different places. So first, start with yourself. Do you find larger bodies undesirable? Because if you do and you have a larger body, it's going to be hard for you to maybe settle in and neutralize that or see a positive. So start working on your own body positivity. Start watching porn with larger bodies. Start calling out when you are shaming larger bodies, Right. Um, start practicing giving pleasure and touching and seeing your body, right? Look at the messages your partner might be giving you and ask them to please quiet down on the critique, right? So it's all about starting to take care of your body. Start with the self-talk, 
pay attention to the messages that you're surrounding yourself in, pay attention to the messages your partner are giving you, pay attention to the way you're moving through the world, right? Start reading more body positive material. Look, people often want an easy answer. It's work. You can't, I can't tell someone in five minutes how to undo what has been done over decades. And I can't, make someone healthy if they're going back to an unhealthy environment. The environment matters. So you have to create a healthier environment. So the question is, how do we create a more body positive or body neutral environment? Look at what you're watching, look at what you're reading, look at what you're following, look at what you're listening to, and look at what you're saying. Hit all those levels and start trying to learn how to be anxious and still have sex and be shown that your body shape and size does not matter. Good luck with that though. It's a life's work and our culture doesn't let us feel okay in the body we have. My, uh, you know, uh, fat identified plus size model friend Tess Holiday is always out there fighting the good fight and I watch the feedback she gets. She's newly single, re-entering the dating world soon and it's heartbreaking to watch the pushback that she gets. I was just seeing her on social media about a dress she wore and a comment she made and everyone's fat phobia coming at you. And uh, we got to do better. There's so much fat phobia everywhere in medicine, in psychology, in media, in the fitness world. Um, it's a tough battle, you know, but as you're pointing out in your question inherently, it's a necessary thing to do because when we're having sex or relating to someone on any level, our self-esteem, our body esteem is brought forth. We have to go up against what we're thinking, what we think they're thinking, how much worth we think we have, desirability, and also pay attention to the sex you're having. You know, there are communities in which it's more body positive. Those are the worlds that ideally you should socialize in and have sex within. And so seek those out as well. The erotica we look at, the things we're reading. I mean, the way I built my body positive neutrality is by reading tons of body positive books. You have to relearn that. You have to unlearn the other stuff. So you have to read. I had to look at the social media I'm following. I had to look at the movies I'm watching. And I had to start changing the conversations I'm having with myself and my friends. I'm stopping friends saying, listen, I'm going to stop you. I don't really want to talk about or hear about your workout routine. I'm trying to neutralize that. I'm going to stop you. It sounded very body negative. That person has a right to wear that no matter what they look like or to have that sex, right? You have to do the work. It's not easy, but it's important. So do that. Slide in the DMs is brought to you by our friends at Trojan Condoms because it's a big old sex world and we want you to explore with confidence. Question of the night, it's up on our Loveline IG page. Um, and then some DMs. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, now we're going to go to our next guest, Dr. Brad Klontz, Associate Professor and Financial Psychologist. How are you? Welcome to the show. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Chris. Yeah, I was really looking forward to this. And this is a topic that I think touches a lot of us. So how do we start to wrap our heads around uh, the financial impact of COVID? Yeah, you know, so coming into this crisis, money was the number one source of stress in three out of four Americans' lives. Um, and it's just obviously so much worse now. So we've taken the biggest stressor in the lives of Americans and we've just amplified it tenfold. Oof. Yeah, it's a no, no, no small feat. I mean, that's what I'm just seeing coming in my office clinically is individuals that usually, you know, finances aren't something that we have to necessarily talk about. It's now like a thread that's woven into everyone's life. So what are some of the tips or what are some things people should think about that are on the front end of the curve? Because we want to talk, you know, reactively, but also preventatively. Yeah, I think that um, part of it, obviously, is so much of it is psychological, like how we're interpreting this threat. And so financial stress for most people isn't life threatening, 
like in and of itself, like, are you going to starve to death? Are you going to die of exposure? For most people, that's not the situation. But we respond physiologically as if we are going to die. So financial stress can kill you, even if your financial situation won't kill you. And so something that I think is really useful, I call it the worst case scenario exercise, is to actually plan out the worst case scenario. So let's say that you did lose your job. Let's say that you lost your house. What would you do next? What would happen next? And if you just keep exposing yourself to that concept, quite often for many of us, it, it would involve moving back in with family or with friends. Uh, I got to be honest, for my kids, it would, they'd probably look at it as the best time in their life, you know, <laughs> while, while I'm sitting here thinking it's the worst time in my life. And so I think that exposing yourself to that really can help calm down your subconscious, which is going to interpret this as life threatening, even if it's not. Yeah, that's one of the things I was opening the show saying, just in general as well. You know, be very thoughtful about not catastrophizing every thought, mood, or feeling, kind of right-sizing everything, saying maybe how would I have responded to this prior to COVID, kind of cranking it down a little bit? Yes, absolutely. I love that. I love the whole avoiding catastrophic thinking because the same thoughts we had in the previous financial crisis, every financial crisis throughout history is always the same. It's the catastrophic thoughts, like things will never be the same. This is This time it's different. What if I'll never recover? What if I never get my money back? I mean, it's the exact same catastrophic thinking at every time in history. And what we know is that these things, you know, they work out. Like even if it, even if it is the worst case scenario, you've lost your job, you've lost your health, you can rebound from this when we recover. And then what are your thoughts about just staying in the moment? I know that some of this sounds like us pushing ourselves really powerfully maybe into the future. Do you recommend us staying present in the moment and tackling kind of what's in front of us? I think it's obviously a combination of both, but one of the mantras that I've really been pushing is, where's the opportunity? Where's the opportunity? And so I actually have this pop up in my phone 10 times a day. You know, It's like, I'm stuck at home with my children. Where's the opportunity? And I gotta be honest, for example, Dr. Chris, with my children, I'm actually a way better father now because in the midst of the crisis, I'm like, okay, so now I need to mentor my own child. Now I need to apprentice him in a sense, right? And so where's the opportunity for me to like be in the moment, just as you said, to be a better father. I've been cooking more. I've been losing weight. I mean, looking for the opportunity because there's a huge mess going on, but where's the opportunity in our lives to make the best of it? Yeah, and I like that because as you were saying that in my body, I felt a little more in control. I felt a little more empowered. And, you know, I was reading one of the interviews that um, you were in or, you, you know, you were part of, and the word post-traumatic growth came up. And I love that we're talking more about that because I think while still honoring the negative outcomes of an event, I like the idea of what you just said about looking at maybe what benefits can come from it. And, and post-traumatic stress is a very real deal. And I did a study back in 2008 in the midst of that crisis. Financial planners, like 90% of them had post-traumatic stress. And, and we can imagine the Great Depression post-traumatic stress led to an entire generation of hoarders. So we are experiencing a trauma, I feel like, on a national level. Um, and the opportunity with trauma, as you know, is, is you're here and, and it knocks you off your feet and you have the opportunity to actually be better off than you were before this even happened, if we process it correctly. I like that. And then speak for a second just about some of the guilt or shame. I am working with some people and I have some friends in my own lives who are struggling with the finances, maybe unemployment, and they're feeling guilt and shame about being someone who's unemployed right now. Yeah, so like this is one of those weird times in history where you have a psychological bailout around feeling ashamed. Because like in previous crises, I'd have to say, well, like, was that a house you should have bought? Should you have planned better? Um, and this crisis, actually, the government came in and just shut down everything. 
So if there's ever a time to not feel shame, it's like, hey, welcome to the club. Like the government came in and just shut down our entire economy. And so this probably isn't 100% your fault. Um, and so there's some things outside of your control in this instance, which I actually think helps. Yeah, I like that, though. It's a it's a healthy amount of passing the buck on to what really is responsible for what's happening. Look, I'm taking full advantage of that, literally in, in reality, but also jokingly. So uh, COVID is, is kind of woven into everything. So it's hard to really separate that out. So I feel like anything that's going on that's annoying or frustrating, my first thought is like COVID, but it also kind of reduces some of the panic in saying so. It really does. So like, as you know, like internal locus control is, is really the healthiest and most functional way to look at life where essentially you blame yourself for everything. And so I think there's tons of value in looking at what's my role in this. And okay, maybe I didn't have an emergency fund, right? So now I know I get it. Now I know why emergency funds exist. I need three to six months of income just in case something happens. But this, this is definitely a circumstance where people doing everything right. It, it's just, you know, we're, we're, you just got hit and it's probably not your fault. Yeah, and, and speak to this piece. So for those that are maybe they've they've got this covered or, or or they're not maybe struggling some of these ways, but they're aware of the fact that there is still a, a moment for some growth in this. Would you say that we should come out of this moment recognizing, look, times like this are possible. We should be budgeting. We should have Plan Bs. What what can the larger group take away from this? Yeah, I think that we are experiencing as an example, like why that emergency fund is important, why we should be hedging our bet, why we should be diversifying, for example, our sources of income. I think there's a huge learning experience here. Um, and also like we're experiencing something that hasn't been experienced for over a hundred years. And I think part of what adds to the stress is this fear in the back of your head that says, no, actually, I might actually die from this. <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there's a there's an illness, there's a virus that's running rampant in our country. And so I think that is just totally added to the stress. All right, Dr. Brad Klontz, thank you so much for your time and being a part of the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having Have me. Have a great night. You can catch more of Jay Moore and Dr. Brad on I'm Listening, our mental health show that airs every Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific time on Radio.com. All right, we're back. I, I love stuff like this. I was looking at this article. I was talking about something completely unrelated, and it had like one of those pop-ups, and the pop-up was talking about the 10 gay states in America. <laughs> Hey, yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm going to read you a quote. Um, turns out, according to the census, right, the gay states when it comes to gay population, right, some parts of the country are gayer than others. So it's basically looking at census information, um, states that are more liberal and that are on the east and west coast skew more gay, right? Makes sense because the states on the coast, California and the New York and the Philadelphia, the larger cities, tend to have more universities and higher education. And we get educated from a lot of different sources and places. Academia and universities are not the only places, but the more liberal is the more educated. The more educated tend to be the more liberal and they all tend to be the most gay positive. And so people that are you know, LGBTQIA run to urban environments to find community, to find representation and inclusion, to find self-esteem and worth, to have a healthy sex and dating life. So that's not shocker. All right, so let's go through it. The top 10 gayest states in America. Let's see if it surprises you. Um, number one, Nevada. Really? That was surprising. It's gotta all be in Vegas. But I, I'm shocked to hear that. That's, I mean, look at the percentage, 0.495. That's so small, but Nevada's the gayest state in America. Number two, California. Now, I, you know, again, we have to ask a few more questions. I don't know if what I don't know like what their standard was. If it's just how many gay people are there in that state. Number three was Delaware. Number four, Rhode Island, and then number five was New York. 
I don't, that seems off to me. I'm going to dig deeper in that. That's something that, that isn't quite what I was expecting. All right. We're going to switch gears because <laughs> I have so many questions about it. So let's talk about first date questions. So I agree with some of these disagree with others, but it's basically a bunch of experts got together and said, look, what are the questions, the 10 questions you should ask on a first date to determine if there should be a second now remember, first dates, people are anxious. They're not always their best. And that's why I say you wanna give someone at least three dates to give them time to kind of settle in, get more confident, more comfortable. So some of these questions are kind of ridiculous. Some of them are kind of awesome. First one that they say you should ask is, what's your ideal version of a relationship? You know, again, I think it's a tough question because someone can only speak from their position of right then, being single, why not knowing you and not knowing what you can create. And that's gonna change. We're different people in every relationship and our needs are different. So that's a rough one. Another one is, do they think they're in a relationship with you right now? I like that because it's basically saying, do you date or do you just try to jump in a relationship? Do you meet one person and zero in and see that right away as a relationship? Or do you casually date and get to know and then decide? I think that's important. Also, the question of, do you do monogamy? You know, again, someone could say no, but then they're with someone and the person, it's important to them. And they say, I care about you enough where I'm willing to try that or give you monogamy. So these things shouldn't be deal breakers because it's like the whole question of, do you want children? Well, who, what are you asking me right now today? I can only answer from that position. I don't know how I'll feel in a year or five years. Is this question being asked with me assuming that the person asking that we're in a healthy relationship where our mental health needs are being met and we're taking care of each other? Because that's a different answer than if it's a really conflictual relationship, right? So these questions kind of matter. What brings you joy? I like that one a little bit. Um, that one's stupid. Here's another one. If all of the animals were suddenly able to talk, which of them would be the rudest? What? Now, their explanation for that question, which I hate, is, and this one of the experts saying, a ridiculous question like this helps you assess someone's capacity for playfulness. I guess. I don't know. I don't have patience for stupid stuff like that. Although I can be playful, which many, some of you might be shocked to hear. My, you know, professional and media identity isn't always infused with humor and ridiculousness. Uh, but that's because a lot of the topics I talk about require some seriousness. However, we continue. Another one is what are the top three qualities you're looking for in a significant other? I'm not mad at that. That one I feel pretty solid about because that can be somewhat of an ongoing generalized thing and you'll kind of get a sense of you know their ethics, what's important to them. Another one is, I love this one too. What's your idea of a perfect date? That's where you can start to really assess social compatibility, right? Do we like to do the same thing socially? Are we gonna be compatible on weekends and holidays? Because that's huge. If you don't like bars and crowds or you drink or don't drink, whether or not your partner does is gonna really be an issue on weekends and holidays, New Year's Eve, birthday parties. Um, I don't drink, so I wouldn't be compatible or interested in being with someone who wants to go to things that center around drinking. That's not fun for me, nor do I enjoy that intoxicated conversation. So like that's, that's reasonable. Another one, what's your relationship like with your parents? You know, I don't know. That doesn't necessarily speak to the person. That might be toxic, Parents, not all parents are worthy of being in someone's life. So someone saying I don't relate to my parents doesn't necessarily say something about them. It might be the parents. There's so many extenuating circumstances. That's like these hard-lined questions are not something I usually support. Another one, are you still close with childhood friends? I mean, again, maybe they've moved on. Maybe they've moved to another country. Maybe they're married and focused on family and children. So I like where some of these are trying to go. But again, we don't want hard lines in dating. The best way to date initially is to be really open and seeing who the person is, who the two of you might be when you come together, and that's gonna shift and change. We don't always know what we need. And a lot of times these expectations, deal breakers, or ideals are rooted in our ego. They're coming from our fragility. They're what we think we need or what'll make us feel best or easiest, but it's not always what's gonna be the most 
what's going to make us thrive the most. It's okay to have some challenging and transformative experiences and expectations, but um, God bless it. I just really want people to explore social compatibility. You know, do we like to do the same kinds of things out in the world and social, you know, socialize? Um, also emotional and psychological compatibility. Like what's it like when we're sitting and having conversations? Do we like the same amount of closeness, depth and intimacy? And then also physical and sexual. Do we have sexual chemistry and compatibility or is that going to be something that's going to make us have conflict and, and kind of create distance? You know, those are the things that really weigh in on the health or sustainability of a relationship, right? Not what animal they think will be the rudest. Though I do value playfulness and silliness and someone's confidence to be able to drop into that, right? Because that's often pathologized. Being childlike or playful, oh, I think it's a beautiful thing. Uh, me and the person I'm dating, we are very playful and childlike and I value the safety and confidence for us to be able to do that. Coming up next, question of the night. So still some time to wait in on that. And then of course, we'll be doing some DMs. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. Right now, children and their families all over Southern California are going to bed hungry. Channel Q and radio.com have an easy way that you can help feed local students and their families. Text the word NEED to 76278 to give a buck and also put food in the mouth of a hungry child and their loved ones. Just $1, it's gonna make a big difference. Learn more about Feed Our Families on our socials and at wearechannelq.com. All right, y'all, we're back. Time for question of the night. According to a new survey done by Clutter, 47% of millennials and Gen Zers won't date you if you don't recycle. 45% say they would reject you if they found out you used too many single-use plastics like grocery bags. What is your biggest turnoff when dating someone new? I appreciate this. This is kind of that social compatibility thing a little bit. We're trying to assess if we have similar ethics and whatnot because how people treat animals and children and marginalized communities and individuals and people that are subordinates, that tells us about their mental health, that tells us about their ethics, their value system, and you'll be influenced by that. You'll also have to encounter that. Like, do you wanna be fighting about that? Do you respect someone who doesn't treat people with kindness and compassion, right? That's huge for me, so I really value questions like this. So again, question tonight is, what's your biggest turnoff when dating someone new? First person said, if their mattress is straight on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I so appreciate that. <laughs> um, you, you want it propped up, right? You got it. That's where you do your work. No, I appreciate it. There's so much infused in that one. Another uh, person said the biggest turnoff on dating someone new, if they litter, and yes, I'm a millennial. That's huge for me. And a lot of smokers somehow think throwing their cigarette on the ground isn't littering. It is. It is. That's one of the higher forms of littering. And it's also quite toxic for the environment. I won't date smokers, and that's a conversation for another time, but I have no interest in cigarette smokers. I don't like the smell, I don't like the taste. I like people that are more focused on their health. I also think throwing it on the ground is horrible. Littering is horrible. I'm an environmentalist. It's also why I'm plant-based. It's one of the number one ways we can take care of climate change and the environment, uh, reduce that kind of violence. But yeah, littering is, is horrifying to me because I'm worrying about their other levels of care or lack of care around environment, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, biggest turnoff when you're dating someone new, someone said if they chew with their mouth open or have bad table manners. Um, I don't care about manners. I want people to be caring, compassionate. And if someone is really creative in the way that they sit at a table, power to them. Sit how you want to sit. I, I don't subscribe to there's a right way to sit in a chair or use a utensil. Like I'm all about creative diversity and honesty. Like hold your fork upside down. It'll keep me, I'll keep laughing. Like F with the system, you know what I mean? Chew with their mouth open though. Yeah, I can find that really hard to hear. 
Um, it's an annoying sound. Yes, that, that's, that's a funky one for me too. Question tonight, what's your biggest turnoff when dating someone new? Someone said, if you're a bad or slow driver, it's gonna be a hard no. I love that. I am a very um, assertive driver. I am. And if someone were driving very slow or recklessly, I'd feel unsafe. And that would be something hard for me to sit with as well. Someone else said, um, I agree. I wouldn't date someone if they don't recycle or if they didn't sort their garbage. Yep. Again, I'm an environmentalist. I, um, I want someone to care about that stuff. I also, people I date, I try to move them towards a plant-based diet, helping them understand where it's better for health, the environment. Uh, and I appreciate that. Recycling is a huge part. Climate change is real, y'all. And we got to do something about it, such as vote in Biden and Kamala Harris, 2021. Bam. Um, okay. Question of the night is, what's your biggest turnoff when dating someone new? Someone said, if, if someone doesn't take care of themselves, guys should have good hygiene too. I know. Floss, y'all. Got to floss. I can't make out with someone who doesn't floss. I can't be kissing you with food in your mouth still. Food particles from days ago. It's gross, yo. Clean that stuff up. It's a mess. Hard line with that one. Uh, question of the night. What's your biggest turnoff when dating someone new? Someone said, well, if you're a racist, that's a no. But also, if you wouldn't go to a protest with me, we got to change the world together. I love that. That's huge for me too. If someone doesn't care about our racist culture and country, that's not going to work because I do, right? And I'm going to frustrate them and their lack of care is going to frustrate me. And I'm with you. I want to go to protest together. Racist is a hard no. Homophobia is a hard no. Sexism is a hard no. I want people that have done the work and have care and compassion. You know, I'm a therapist. I don't want to date someone who should be in my office working on their ethics and mental health, you know? Question of the night, what's your biggest turnoff in dating someone new? Someone said, I'll never understand people that can't clean up after themselves. Like some messes are okay, but if there's more, but if it's there for more than two days, I'm leaving. Yeah, look, I, I appreciate that. Uh, sometimes though, people don't have the same needs for cleanliness or uh, tidiness. And those are two separate things. Cleanliness, I need. Tidiness, I, I will try to get them to be better. I'm also willing to pick up the slack if I tend to like things a little more tidy and put away than they do. You know, I'm realizing that there's no right or wrong way in that piece. But remember, we're always impacting each other. And so be thoughtful about your level of cleanliness and tidiness and hygiene and how that might, you know, bring the person with you closer or push them further away. You know, these things matter. But that's why we should date, take our time, right? Figure out all these different pieces. We date to decide if we want a relationship, right? We don't just jump in and relationship. We date casual, give it some time, a couple months, see if those, the compatibility chemistry is there and then decide if we want to move into something more formal and structured, you know, give it time. Otherwise these things creep up on you, but if you give it time, they don't creep up on you. You know what I mean? You see them coming and we're ready for it. All right, coming up next, DMs. Thank you to all those that participated in question tonight. It's gonna to be up already though for our next day, so weigh in on that. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. All right, we're back. Now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. Sliding the DMs is brought to you by our friends at Trojan Condoms because it's a big old sexy world and we want you to explore with confidence. Here we go. This one says, Dear Dr. Chris, I've been dating. I'm sorry, excuse me. Dear Dr. Chris, I've been debating. See, that, that's what happens when you do the work I do. <laughs> Everything seems like the word dating, sex. I can't tell you how many times that happens where I, I my brain, right? Our brains, our left hemisphere is always trying to make guesses at what we're seeing or reading. And it bases that on associations. So familiar words that look like other words, our brain will misinterpret. Uh, this one says though, Dear Dr. Chris, I've been debating wanting to transition into being a man. I just feel like everything I've read 
says you should know right away, or you always have had a feeling and that's just not the case for me. I've grown up with short hair, liking girls, and dressing more masculine. But just recently I've been thinking of transitioning. And obviously you can't go back once you've done it. Is there any way you can truly know? Um, a thousand things to point out. There's no right journey or way to be yourself. Some people figure out who they are early in life. Some people figure out who they are later in life. But more importantly, it's, all, it's an ongoing journey. We never land. We never arrive. We're always becoming. Honestly, it's hard for people to understand that. We're always becoming. We're always changing and growing. Who I am now is not the same person I was last month or last year. And I hope to always keep evolving and my opinions change. I said that before while lecturing. Everything I'm telling you now, I might say the opposite next year. I don't know. I'm always learning and growing and changing my mind. I'm an open system. And our gender can be that way too. Also remember, you don't have to be in the binary. Just because you've been assigned one gender at birth, if that isn't who you are or comfortable, it doesn't mean you're the quote unquote opposite. Maybe you're no gender, right? Maybe you're gender fluid. Maybe you're outside the binary. And also know that there's a multitude of ways to be a man or a woman if you choose that binary. You can be a woman that has more masculine attributes. Um, and so you have to really decide. And so I would say, Go on the journey more. Do more research. You can go back. Some people are always going back and forth. Again, some people aren't on the binary. They're fluid. And sometimes their presentation and who they represent as themselves is more male, other times more female. It can go back and forth in a single day. There's no right or wrong way. And so whenever someone uses the word transitioning, I always just want to hold space if they don't know this already to recognize that our body doesn't have to align with our gender. The clothing we wear doesn't align with our gender. Some people might have a female, a, a traditional female assumed anatomy. They have a vagina and a vulva. They might even dress in f traditional female ways, but identifies as male or man. Um, not everyone has a body or a gender presentation that matches their gender. It's a very complex thing. And so, yes, you can go back. Yes, you can keep changing. Yes, you can realize later in life. Yes, you can realize now you want something and then years from now shift to something else or go back to something. Everything doesn't have to be aligned. And so you have to challenge all of that. Um, I'd honestly say to read my books. It's kind of all in there. Sex Outside the Lines and Rebel Love. It really talks about all that's possible and normalizes all sorts of diverse creative ways of being. But I just want to land this question by saying, if you don't feel that you are the gender you're assigned at birth, it doesn't mean you're the opposite gender. It could mean that you need to be the present gender, but in a different form or expression, or that it's going to be an always ongoing open evolution. It doesn't always mean any work or changes need to be done with your body. Um, so do the work, read my book. We'll keep talking about this, but again, there's no right or wrong way and it can keep changing. Always an open system. Sliding into the DMs is brought to you by our friends at Trojan Condoms because it's a big old sexy world. And we want you to explore it with confidence. Hope you're checking out my live stream show, which is on every Thursday night, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. It's on all the radio.com handles. I'm listening live is its name. It's on their Twitter and their YouTube and their Facebook. And you can check out past episodes. It's always a celebrity and expert talking about the intersections of mental health and COVID and self-care. It's really beautiful stuff. I'm really impressed with how vulnerable these celebrities get. It's a, it's a you know a new side of them that many of us don't get to see. And as always, old podcast episodes of Loveline are available on wearechannelq.com. You can go back, binge listen, post, share, bring new people into the family. It's a good place and resource for some people to really get educated and do the work. A lot of things we talk about are familiar to listeners because they're in the work. But those outside of us, they're not. And you can recommend it to them. My books, my radio show. 
um, or you can listen with them and talk about what you're hearing or what you're learning. But it's a good way to get conversations going, get people more familiar, challenge people, transform. Uh, join me Monday. We'll be back. Hope you all have an awesome weekend. Remember, focus, focus, focus every day. Self-care, pleasure, and rest. Right now, the most healing, important thing we can do and the most revolutionary is just rest. Take time to ourselves. Turn our phones off. Focus on pleasure. As always, y'all, thanks for hanging out with me. And you all have a beautiful, beautiful night.